Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Big day for the administration. Oh, my. Oh, yes. Here we go. I, I talked to you. Many days, day in and day out here, about focusing on the agenda, get things done, take action. Well, today, it seems not only do we have the administration making the case, but we've got some senators who are stepping up and deciding that, yes, in fact, they will do something on the issue of immigration. There we have it. Finally, finally, something to look at and say, okay. So this isn't just this isn't just necessarily a huge waste of time this whole Republican party thing that we've got going on. There there are some reasons to believe that maybe they will in fact get some legislation passed that will change things. Uh that will actually uh, improve different parts of this country. It's possible. It's not definite, but it's certainly possible. So you had the proposal go forward today. Um, from a couple of senators, uh, you have Senator Tom Cotton making the case publicly, and then you had this uh, this conference or this uh, press conference by Stephen Miller. That was just phenomenal. You know what? Actually, I want to get into the Miller press conference right away because I thought this was the first of all, it was the the best press conference I can remember of the Trump era since since he initially went on that. Uh, went on that rampage where he was pointing at CNN and calling them fake news and very fake news. Stephen Miller was uh, en fuego today. I mean, he was doing a great job handling the press. I mean, that Miller Acosta, Jim Acosta from CNN, that exchange that they had was, wow, it was great. And it really highlights, by the way, one of the, the primary divides. It It's one of those moments where you could say, you know what, this is why we've got Trump. Because of the mentality expressed by someone like Jim Jim Acosta, this this is why we've got Trump. This is how we've come to the current uh, situation where people are just they've just had enough. So let's let's get into uh, a bit of what. And I said I want to get to this press conference. I do. Here are the basics, right? We we could talk a lot about what's going on with immigration, but here are the basics. You have. Um, a couple of GOP senators, Tom Cotton and David Perdue, Cotton of Arkansas, Perdue of Georgia, they have rolled out legislation that would address shortcomings in current legal immigration policy. Ooh, that's right, legal immigration. Forget about illegals for a moment. This is primarily concerned, or this is concerned with our legal immigration system, who we're letting into the country. Why are we making the decisions that we do as a government on behalf of the American people about who's let into America? Okay, so 
we're going to have an end to chain migration and a point-based skills system. Those are the two primary points in this whole in this whole ordeal. That's that's what will change. Uh, chain migration being, if you're here, you get to sponsor somebody who's a relative to come here, which means that you just have more relatives sponsoring more relatives, and they go to the front of the line. A point system would replace that, meaning that now they're going to look at you and they're going to decide, well, what do you bring to the country? What skills? Maybe even what resources? Uh, why should we let you into the country becomes an issue of merit instead of an issue of, well, the accident of what country you come from and what current immigration law is based on what Teddy Kennedy and others decided decades ago. So that's it, right? This is a completely reasonable proposal, and I think for a lot of Americans, they hear this, they go, yeah, that's right. Of course. Of course we should make these decisions based upon what's best for the country. We don't have an immigration system set up to make elite liberals in this country feel good about themselves. That's actually not what the purpose of the immigration system is supposed to be. It is to benefit those who are already here, citizens, green card holders, to benefit the people who are Americans, who are here for good. That's the way this is supposed to work, but that's not how it has been working. Uh, but you'll notice that while this is in a, a completely sensible proposal, there is nothing about this that strikes me as in any way odd. In fact, What's odd is that now when you talk about going from a million, that's right, a million green cards given out year in and year out to, let's say, at the end of this, assuming this becomes law and there are hurdles, and we'll get into all this, 500,000. That 500,000 green card holders, if that is in fact what the country starts to do because of this new legislation that the Republicans and the Senate and the Trump administration are trying to get through— that there's a, a surge of nativism and xenophobia, fear of foreigners. That's what they will say. Because it's not a million, now it's 500,000. Now, it, it will get into the numbers. It hasn't always been a million. It used to be a lot less. And in fact, there have been whole periods in our history where we had a more or less shutdown of the immigration system. And you can certainly make the argument and use case studies in history to support the argument that that allowed for greater assimilation, that this was, in fact, very useful. This was very helpful to the country because w those who had come in as recent immigrants had time to adapt to the culture, to become more established, and to become fully Americanized. But if you're just bringing in, year in and year out, disparate cultures from all over the world in large numbers— you start to have not assimilation, but you could say an infusion or an imposition of outside ideas, beliefs onto the American, onto the American conscience. That's, that's what can happen, right? And this is the very simple thought experiment you can put forward is, okay, well, in, in the Netherlands, if they brought in uh, 50,000 immigrants all from let's say a, a uh, you know all from Pakistan I'm just picking a country at random uh, that would be an immigrant population in Pakistan if they brought in 500,000 that would change what it feels like what it 
is to be a citizen of that country because you would have a shift in politics, culture, um, that would be impossible to miss. It would be obvious to all, right? So we know that the numbers matter. We're being told that, well, if it's less than a, if it's less than a million, if we go back to 500,000, then that's some terrible thing. Why is that? For Democrats, let's just get this out here right away. This is about two things and two things only. And this is echoed by the media, and this, uh, uh, this is an argument that we got to get ready for right now. This is about two things. One, power. Democrats rely on large numbers of unskilled immigrants to give them votes because unskilled immigrants are more likely to be needing help from the state. They're more likely, yes, to be using welfare. And so they would like the large numbers of unskilled immigrants to come into the country. And also they like immigration from the third world because the third world is predominantly non-white and because the Democratic Party's Identity politics are so central to it right now. The more non-white immigrants the Democratic Party can bring in, the more the Democratic Party believes it is building towards a one-party state, a permanent majority. This also is one of the primary uh, reasons, really the primary reason, behind why the Democrats are so desperate to get amnesty as well. They view a permanent majority as in play based on huge numbers of not just immigrants, but illegal immigrants. So, the other part of this, so that's one part, power, just pure power politics for the Democrat Party. The other aspect of it is the social signaling, the virtue signaling, the social justice warrior aspect of this, but for particularly for the limousine liberal private jet progressive set. Those who like to just think of themselves as incredibly, uh, you could say, uh, morally meretricious. I mean, they're they're showy in their in their morality, right? They're such good people. They're so concerned. They're so sanctimonious and superior. They just want to see the world's tired and uh, poor and huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That's right. That's the the poem it actually came up today as though that's a part of the constitution or something it's a poem written by some lady who was trying to raise some money at the statue of liberty but the media does not know that which is a perfect transition i guess now that we've established why do the democrats and the media same thing right i repeat myself Uh, why does the democrat media oppose this reduction in legal immigration so vehemently. They'll say anything. They'll say it's racism. They'll say it's going to destroy our economy. They'll say, and by the way, there are Republicans, too, who are going to say this. It's very troubling. You're going to see a lot of Republicans that, if they haven't already, deeply disappoint you on this issue, I think. I think that's likely. But we've established why they they want power and they want to feel good about themselves. At the expense of other people, we should note. You don't see a lot of prominent leftists, well-connected, wealthy leftists living in, especially the ones that are you know, have big shows on MSNBC and you know ABC and all this. You won't see them living in immigrant neighborhoods. No, 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 no. So their kids don't have to go to school with the immigrants. Their kids don't have to uh, deal with English as a second language becoming the primary academic focus in the classroom because nobody's speaking English. I mean, they don't have to compete for jobs 
with the newly arrived immigrants. This actually even came up today. So there's a, a really a really pernicious, nasty elitism that drives a lot of this conversation. And also a, a, a sneering contempt uh, that as though we're not going to figure out that the the Chris Matthews and the Joe Scarboroughs and the you know go down the list of this country who will be as sanctimonious as anyone on on immigration I am sure I mean I'm just picking people at random that I that I know like to hang out in Nantucket and are fancy uh, who are big in the media you know Rachel Maddow you name them right they're going to be talking about how this is so terrible uh, but they they don't live in immigrant majority neighborhoods they don't deal with immigrant crime uh, illegal immigrant crime specifically um, they don't they don't have to handle these problems so they get to just like when people talk about raising the tax rates and but on everybody else right or climate change is a a mortal threat for us but i'm not going to change my behavior you change your behavior they live in these gated communities or they live in doorman buildings here in new york city they don't have to deal with immigrants but they love to talk about how much they love immigrants. And you saw that today. And that's why the, the Stephen Miller-Jim Acosta exchange is one of the single best things I have seen on TV in a long time. Um, and Miller just calls him out. 30. Are we just going to bring in people from Great Britain and Australia? Jim, it's actually, I have to honestly say, I am shocked at your statement that you think that only people from Great Britain and Australia would know English. It's actually, it reveals your cosmopolitan uh, bias to a shocking degree that in your mind, no, this is an amazing, this is an amazing moment. This is an amazing moment that you think only people from Great Britain or Australia would speak English is so insulting to millions of hardworking immigrants who do speak English from all over the world. Jim, have you honestly, Jim, have you honestly never met a, an immigrant from another country who speaks English outside of Great Britain and Australia? Is that your personal experience? Of course there are people who come But that's not what you said. And it shows, it shows your cosmopolitan bias. And I just want to say... It sounds like you're trying to engineer the racial say, and ethnic flow of people into this country. Jim, this that policy. is one of the most outrageous, insulting, ignorant, and foolish things you've ever said. I, it was a great exchange. I mean, Stephen Miller, I, I tip my hat to the guy, did a fantastic job today. And also you just see this, these journalists in the West, these journalists who get all whiny about not being able to have the televised press conferences. For them, it's just, it's just about airtime. It's just about ego. It's not about journalism. It's not about bringing the American people the facts, you know, democracy dies in darkness. No, it's about, you know, being on TV and being famous. All right. I, I want to talk more about how this is going to turn into a debate over racism. It already happened today. Uh, we've got more of the Stephen Miller exchange. Uh, we'll get into the details of this bill, but a really important, really, in, a really important day, really impactful day for uh, the Republican Party if they can get this through for the Trump administration for leading the fight on this. It's actually, it's actually about a sweeping change. To surely, the Jim, you don't actually think that a wall affects green card policy. You couldn't possibly believe that, do you? Actually, the notion that you actually think immigration is at a historic law, the foreign-born population in the United States today, Jim, Jim, talking about how border crossings. Do you really? I want to be serious, Jim. Do you really at CNN not know the difference between green card policy and illegal immigration? I mean, you really don't know that. He came to this country in 1962, right before the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, but but this whole, you know, he's he's just out there. 
uh, you know, he's he's out there pushing back on all this nonsense from from the press corps. Uh, they there was a whole exchange about. And I'll see if I can pull it for you about uh, the Statue of Liberty, and I mean Acosta was talking about being sanctimonious here. Uh, it was. It was some pretty exceptional stuff. Uh, and, of course, he, he said that, uh, well, Miller had to defend whether or not this was a, a quote, a racist uh, bill. Here's what, here's what he said about this. The notion that you think that this is a racist bill is so wrong and so insulting. Jim, the reality is, is that the foreign-born population into our country has quadrupled since 1970. That's a fact. It's been mostly driven by green card policy. Now, this bill allows for immediate nuclear family members to come into the country, much as they would today, and then it adds an additional points-based system. The people who've been hurt the most, the people who've been, the people who've been, the people who've been, the people who've been hurt the most by the policy you're advocating are apparently just unfettered, uncontrolled migration. The people who've been hurt the most by the policy, the people who've been hurt the most by the policy that you're, the people who've been hurt the most by the policy you're advocating are immigrant workers and minority workers and African-American workers and Hispanic workers. So you'll notice he's not backing down despite the fact, um, despite the fact that the, uh, the press corps there, and there were others as well. I mean, you had uh, that guy from the New York Times was was getting in on it. I mean, all all these reporters are just so smug about how much they all oh, they all just love they all just love talk about how much they want unskilled immigration from the third world into this country. You know, the, the New York Times was writing editorials in like the year two thousand about how you know unskilled immigration in large numbers into America actually depresses the wages of workers at the lower end of the socioeconomic stratum and is in fact the wor- worst, most damaging to the wages of African American workers in this country. That was in the New York Times editorial board, maybe like nineteen ninety nine. I want to say. I don't know if the economics changed all of a sudden, or oh no, that's right. The Democrat Party changed, and I don't think that the infusion of a whole lot of cash from Carlos Slim of Mexico had nothing to do with a substantial change in the New York Times' line when it comes to immigration. I think we can suggest that maybe it just had some degree of influence, just just a little bit. Uh, but anyway, I, I this is—you got—it's worth it, I'm telling you. The, the Miller Exchange today was— Phenomenal stuff uh, with 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 Acosta over at CNN. It's, Acosta was really going for the grandstanding, and uh, Miller was having none of it. Uh, he just he kept fighting and fighting, and I thought he did a, he did a great job. But this raises some questions. What exactly do Democrats think about citizens and citizenship in this country? Do they even believe that it is value or it has value, or is it just something we should give away to anybody? He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. All right, everybody, immigration, top of the agenda for today. The Trump administration deciding that they are going to push forward with some help, of course, from the Senate uh, to limit legal immigration to the country, to change to a point system, a massive shift in how immigration is done here. To talk to us about it, we've got Mark Kikorian online. He's executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark, great to have you. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, tell us about what happened today. I know you got a piece up. Why Trump is right about immigration up on nationalinterest.org. Well, why is he right? What happened? 
Well, this was uh, Trump endorsed something, but it was the senator, Senator Tom Cotton, who's a rising star among the Republicans, and Senator Perdue, who uh, wrote, uh, put together a bill to basically modernize and rationalize our immigration system. And it would do two big things. First, it would focus family immigration rights just on nuclear family. Because now there's all kinds of here, adult sons and daughters, adult brothers and sisters, parents of adult citizens, all kinds of people can get green cards. This would focus it on husbands, wives, and little kids of American citizens and of, of residents. And that makes perfect sense. And what it also does, it reduces the number of lesser skilled workers coming in, and it reduces chain migration. Because what you have is you know, the next batch of immigrants is sponsored by the last batch of immigrants, and you sort of lose control over the immigration flow. So that's the first thing, focuses immigration on nuclear family. And then the other part is what you refer to this appoint system, where the skills part of immigration exists now in the law, but it's this jumble of a whole bunch, half a dozen categories, and there's subcategories, and it's, it's basically made for, you know, lawyers to charge money to navigate through. You know, it's a mess. They're streamlining that to have one point system like they have in Canada or Australia. And what that means is you would enter information about yourself and you'd get points for various characteristics. If you have a Ph.D. in science, you would get a certain number of points. If you score high on an English language aptitude test, you get a certain number of points, that sort of thing. And then the people that would be selected for immigration would be drawn from that pool that, pa- you know, that passed the threshold, that made the cut through with these points. And what you're going to end up with is it's e- it will be easier for the highest skilled people to get into the country without a lot of fuss and bother instead of waiting at the end of some line. Something that came up today, Mark, that I think people have heard of before, but I'll be honest, I don't even really know much about how it functions and, and even why it's in place. I know it comes... At least I think I know it comes from Teddy Kennedy's uh, 1960s-era Immigration Act, but the diversity visa lottery system, what is that? And I know that's supposed to go away, so what happened? Yeah, this bill just gets rid of it. It's a complete scam. It was invented actually in the 80s. Oh, the 80s, okay. By by Ted Kennedy, again. Oh, okay, so it was a a Kennedy legacy, okay. Yeah, year after year he kept screwing up our immigration system. And what it does is it gives out green cards at random, 50,000 people from anywhere in the world except from the top, you know, 12 or so countries. So Mexicans can't get it, but it's mainly an Eastern European, Middle Eastern, and African immigration program. But there's no, there's really no standards. There's no, you know, you're not picking the best and brightest. It's just literally, like it's called, a lottery. And millions of people enter in order to, uh, you know, in order to get a green card. And it's no other country runs anything like this. It's probably the dumbest part of our immigration system. And this, um, this bill would finally get rid of the thing. What was the initial idea behind this? I mean, in, so. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very, in the 80s, in the 1986 amnesty, the big. Your, oh, the Reagan era amnesty, better. right. Yeah, that's when the original, because it's changed some, but that's when it started. And the point of it then was to amnesty Irish illegal immigrants. Because the immigration, the amnesty... My people. Yeah, exactly. The amnesty provisions of that law mainly benefited Mexicans. The Irish illegals had come more recently, and they also didn't do farm work because that was the other part of the amnesty. So they cooked up this cockamamie scheme 
to have a call a diversity lottery in order to get Irish illegal aliens green cards. That's all it was about. And even and now, there's not many Irish at all who use it. But to this day, a lot of congressmen say, oh, yeah, that's the Irish program. We want to keep that. There's no Irishman coming in, but it just continues out of kind of inertia. It sticks around. I know we've got a lot from today to get into. I'm just so curious. I had no idea. So Teddy Kennedy, you know, Massachusetts, Boston, something for the Irish. I get it. How many Irish were affected? How many Irish got hooked up by this diversity lottery system? Well, originally it was thousands of Irish illegal aliens got amnestied through this because there was a lot of Irish illegal immigration. And somehow that's supposed to be better than Mexican because I don't know what. You know, they're white or they're from Europe. I don't know. I mean, illegal immigrant is an illegal immigrant as far as I'm concerned. But somehow that was supposed to be better. Um, but anyway, it was thousands of Irish illegal immigrants got amnesty through it. It's changed over the years, so it really isn't an Irish program anymore, but they still think of it that way. Now, really, it's basically a kind of Ukrainian, Egyptian, and, you know, Nigerian program is uh, kind of the, uh, is what it turns into now. But the fact is, it doesn't, and this is the basic problem with our, much of our immigration system, it doesn't select the best and brightest. It's kind of random. And there's no reason we should be admitting random immigrants when there are Einsteins out there who want to come here. The, the administration put out there the figure today with uh, Stephen Miller leading a, a feisty press conference, which I yeah, very, very entertaining, very much enjoyed. Yes, uh, the the administration said 50 percent of immigrant households receive welfare benefits. You know, Mark, I know you deal with this all the time, the numbers and then the messaging. You're always hearing from the media that uh, uh, immigrants into this country are uh, less likely to com- commit crimes, more productive, uh, less likely to be on welfare. Well, 50% of households on welfare, that's more than actually the the na- uh, the American native-born number. So how do we get to this place, and does anyone contest that number? No, because, I mean, that's our number, actually. It's 51%. Is I mean, we're the ones who uh, did the work on that. And the reason we were able to find this is because we used a different Census Bureau survey. That's actually a much higher number than other Census Bureau surveys show. We went and looked at the Census Bureau survey that specifically asks about welfare use. You'd think somebody would have done that before. The reason they didn't, and I don't understand this because my number cruncher people understand this stuff more than I do, but it's very hard to work with. You really need to be working at a high level of number crunching to be able to manipulate that data. And I don't mean in a bad way, manipulate, just use that data. So nobody ever did. They were lazy. So we did. We spent months working on this thing. And it shows that about half of immigrant households are using at least one welfare program. And the conclusion from this is not that immigrants are bad. You know, it's not like that your grandma from Sicily was better because she didn't use welfare. There was no welfare back then. The problem here is we're letting in people who are poorly educated. They're basically 19th century style immigrants coming into the 21st century America and it doesn't matter how hard they work. They're never going to be able to earn enough money to support the, their family and feed their children. They're going to end up using taxpayer funds. So the solution is not to point fingers at the immigrants. You're bad because you're using welfare. The solution is to do what this bill by Senator Cotton is doing, is just letting in fewer poorly educated people in the first place so you don't end up with them ending up having to be on welfare. 
Mark, one more for you before we let you get back to, I'm sure, what's a very busy day at the Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, the Republicans in Congress, uh, are, are, they, are they going to uh, defect on this one, too, after the health care debacle? This seems to me to be, if, you're, if you call yourself a Republican for rule of law and limited government and you oppose this in the broad strokes, this immigration bill, then you're just a phony. I, I don't know what else to say, but do you think there will be opposition? Oh, of course there will. Lindsey Graham, you know, surprise, those should be the first two words out of my mouth. But Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, who was uh, uh, one of the architects of the Gang of Eight bill, has already come out saying, no, this is terrible. And my state's economy would be devastated if this bill passed, which is complete malarkey, whatever you think about the bill. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think there would be some Republican opposition. It's going to have a steep hill to climb. There's no question about it. But I think it's actually, uh, first of all, there's two things that could happen. One is it doesn't pass, but, the, but it does start this debate because there's almost certainly going to be hearings on it. It's that high profile. And so it's, you know, it may, sometimes it takes a few sessions of Congress to make progress in a big change like that. The other thing is maybe the Democrats will be afraid enough that the DACA people, you know, DACA, the temporary amnesty that Obama yeah. gave, well, those people, they're living on borrowed time, you know. And so what about a deal giving them a regular green card, which I'm not wild about, but look, you've got to do what you've got to do, in exchange for changing future immigration down the road. That might be a good deal. And that, I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen. Don't go and bet your house on that or anything. But there is a non-zero chance that the bill could pass if it had some kind of packaging like that. Mark Kerkorian, executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Go check out CIS.org. And also, Mark's got a piece up on the national interest. Mark, always great to have you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Team, we are going to be hitting a break here. A lot more to talk about today on the show. But what do you think about Trump's immigration position? And, well, I, I should say the senators who rolled it out today. What do you think about what's going on with this immigration bill? Talk about that and more. We got Tom in Ohio, WWVA. Hey, Tom, what's up? Hi, Buck. You know, I, I got to tell you, I, I told your screener I had great reservations about this. No, I'm totally against it. I'll tell you why. I think the starting point from the great negotiator should be, and, and also from the standpoint of just common sense and, and uh, rational thinking, should be a moratorium on immigration to see how many people we actually need in this country and what skills we really need to import. You know, number one, the the robotics uh, uh, and artificial intelligence in the next uh, 15 to 20 years are really going to start hitting big. And we're going to be replacing a lot of people that are already in this country. Where are they going to go to get a better job? You know, the, the, the people that have been here generation after generation. Also, this uh, your guest mentioned about getting the Einsteins. The Einsteins, to me, ought to stay in their own country and help them develop because what happens is we could bring that brain drain here, and then we end up sending them foreign aid and or putting the military in there because their countries are falling apart. Uh, also, we, we need to revise the Civil Rights Act and affirmative action. You know, we, we set that up for discrimination and segregation of minorities that were here generation after, gener- after generation. They include such things as uh, minority business preferences for business loans, for government contracts. That needs to be revised. And countries like Mexico, and, and I'd even throw Canada in there, I, and other countries that have a large number of people here, and in, in many instances like Mexico, illegally, well, you know, they ought to have – there would be a moratorium on them for about 15 or 20 years just to balance things out. Well, 
I'm not going to say I disagree with your uh, idea of stopping immigration. I just think that it's going to be a fight, Tom, just to lessen it. I mean, I'm not even sure the Republican Party is going to go along with the reduction to 600,000 from a million. No, so, I understand that, but the negotiation point should have been a moratorium, and then you negotiate from there. Uh, I see what you're it's saying. Right. Yeah, but, well, yeah, but but, uh, hold, but, but hold on. I mean, uh, that then the the chorus of your anti-immigrant, your your not you, Tom. You know what I mean. The chorus that Trump is anti-immigrant and racist and uh, xenophobic and nativist would be much louder, and I think more reasonable people would pay attention to it, not necessarily agree with it, but pay attention to it just based on the, okay, well, now we're taking no immigrants, right? I I think you could argue that trying to get it down to a half a million and then trying to take it down further from there is much more likely than trying to go, you you know, negotiation is a tricky thing, right? I mean, if you show up to somebody, if if somebody offers, you know, if if somebody has a house on the market for for $200,000 and you show up, you're like, I'll give you 20 bucks. (laughs) You're not a good negotiator. You're just, you're probably insulting them and not getting the house, right? So saying, starting at zero, I'm not, I'm not saying that your, your position is, is laughable the way the $20 offer is, but that would probably be too extreme, I think, for it to, to be effective, based on the political realities of where we are. But in principle, I think you're right in that there's going to be, uh, we've taken in so many immigrants in recent years and the assimilation process needs time to work. And we don't even, we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to be. I mean, part of this is that even if we had an efficient government, which we don't, that was good at gauging who can contribute to the economy uh, and who can't, which we don't, that that's going to be very different in five or 10 years. And the skills that we need and are looking for will be different in, in five or 10 years. And the employment picture for this country may be very different in a few years. So, Tom, I hear you, Matt. Uh, Shields high and a good call. Thank you for, for giving me a ring. I, I did want to get to uh, the the best part of the Miller-Acosta throwdown today in the West Wing, this press conference that I uh, just so entertaining. I mean, not just, I shouldn't just say it's entertaining, right? I mean, entertaining makes it sound like it was just ha-ha or something. There was a lot of important points that both sides were making. Acosta was making the point that the media really believes all this elitist claptrap about how this is all all about you're tired, you're poor, and you're hungry. That's what immigration is supposed to be to this country. And Stephen Miller's like, that's not what the law even says. You're not even arguing for a continuation of what the law says now. You're arguing for some fantasy land immigration law and don't even seem to be familiar with what current law that the Democrat Party has done nothing did nothing in its eight years, including a, a couple of years where it had complete unified party control, Democrat control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency under Obama, did nothing to change existing immigration law, which does make distinctions of all uh, lots of distinctions. It's not effective and it's not enforced properly, but the immigration law that we currently have is not supposed to just bring us as many uh, welfare cases as possible, for example. You, you're supposed to not be a public charge under existing immigration law. But anyway, here's the, here's the best part of the exchange. The Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. It doesn't say anything about speaking English or being able to uh, compu- be a computer programmer. Can't people learn how to speak English when they get here? Well, first of all, right now, it's a requirement that it be naturalized, you had to speak English. So the notion that speaking English wouldn't be a part of our immigration systems would be actually very ahistorical. Secondly, I don't want to get off into a whole thing about history here, but the Statue of Liberty is a symbol of liberty enlightening the world. It's a symbol of American liberty lighting the world. The poem that you're referring to that was added later 
is not actually part of the original Statue of Liberty. Yeah. The, the people refer to this, people like Jim Acosta, senior White House correspondent for CNN, will refer to uh, the, what is it, the uh, Emma Lazarus poem and suggest the, the new Colossus, you know, the, the, the sonnet written by Emma Lazarus to raise money for the Statue of Liberty project. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Uh, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Uh, nice poem, but has nothing to do with immigration law. Costa doesn't even seem to know that, or, or thinks that somehow that's what, that's what immigration's all about in this country. So we're just supposed to take anybody? The, the poorer, the more illiterate, the less uh, linguistically capable, at least when it comes to English, the better? Is that what the media really believes? They really think that that's what we, we should be doing? Uh, there are 7 billion, about 7 billion people in the world. There are 320 million Americans. If we decide that immigration policy in this country is really just about trying to take as many in need as possible, we, this country with the welfare state it already has, and by the way, the entitlement state and the welfare state together threaten to implode our economy and destroy our finances. You want to just make this into the world's soup kitchen? I mean, that's insanity. But yet, senior people in the media believe it. The Democrats pretend to believe it. And that's where you'll see a lot of this debate go. It'll, it'll turn into, well, you know, I'm, I'm the most virtuous person because I want the most poor, non-English-speaking, third-world immigrants possible. Why, as an American citizen, why would I want that? I mean, you know, we, we have, we're big-hearted people. We want to take in some refugees here and there, and I get all that, but we have policies in place to benefit us. That's what the debate really boils down to. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I think we should switch gears for a minute and get into a, a Buck brief. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the Buck Brief. Trump says U.S. losing Afghan war in tense meeting with generals. This is the latest breaking news from NBC. Let me give you some of the details, then we'll get into the substance. Uh, President Donald Trump has become increasingly frustrated with his advisors tasked with crafting a new U.S. strategy in Afghanistan and recently suggested firing the war's top military commander during a tense meeting at the White House. During the July 19 meeting, uh, Trump repeatedly suggested that Defense Secretary James Mattis and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Joseph uh, Dunford uh, replace General John Nicholson, the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, because he is not winning the war. Trump has not met Nicholson. The Pentagon has been considering extending his time in Afghanistan. All right. Now, I know that in certain corners, in uh, the various uh, precincts, well, various areas of this country where people think that they know a lot about national security, you know, the D.C., the Beltway, the the foreign policy commentary crew, they are automatically going to take a react they're going to react to this very negatively because it's trump and they'll say that this is uh, i don't know disrespectful or that this just shows what an ignorant barbarian trump is that he would say such a thing like he's going to fire a general keep in mind that o obama fired the commanding general in afghanistan because one of uh, the generals 
more senior people said some unflattering things about Obama, who, by the way, knew nothing about war or national security when he became president. But I, I think that bears repeating sometimes. The former president knew nothing about war or national security when he became president. Now, I know that Democrats would argue, well, Trump had, Trump is no different, and you know he. But did did you hear much about how Obama had zero experience and really very. Uh, very surface-only knowledge in terms of what was going on uh, around the world, especially when you talk about security matters, military matters. Uh, but with Trump, of course, there's much more of a focus on that. So there was this meeting. Uh, oh, but by the way, yeah, Obama fired his general because the guy said some, according to a Rolling Stone article, said some stuff that was not so great about Obama's commander-in-chief skills. Uh, so... Trump suggesting that a general should be fired because the general's not lo- not winning the war. The general is, in fact, losing the war. Why is that so egregious or such a terrible idea? I, I don't think he's saying fire him from the military. He's just saying should not be in charge of this theater anymore, should not be running this war anymore. Um, and, and maybe it's not even if... And by the way, this is all just based on the NBC reporting. It's a meeting from a few weeks ago. Um, but... Something needs to change. There has to be, as I like to say, they ha- they have to take action here. They can't just sit around and pretend that things are going well in Afghanistan. I can tell you, I know Afghanistan uh, well as a country, as a national security challenge and issue, and it's a place I've uh, been studying and and I've told you about it for I've talked to you about it many times in the past. But this is not going to get better. We can tell ourselves that this war in Afghanistan will just somehow fade away. But in fact, the Taliban, as I have been discussing with you here on this show for many months, is in its strongest position since we toppled them with the help of the Northern Alliance after the September 11th attacks, 2001-2002. That's the truth of what's going on right now in this country. And America's longest war is just extending on and on. We just lost two troops who were killed in an ambush of a convoy in the last couple of days. We're still taking casualties. You won't see much about the U.S. troops who are deployed there, and the media seems to have lost interest. But I can tell you this, this statement that came from a National Security, spoke, a National Security Council spokesperson is not encouraging about where this conflict is and, and where it's going. Here's what was said from, the, uh, from an NSC spokesman. Uh, president's, the president's national security team is developing a comprehensive, integrated strategy for South Asia that utilizes all aspects of our national power to address this complex region. That strategy has been worked carefully in the interagency process, and while no decision has been made, the president's team continues to develop options for him that address threats and opportunities to America arising from this vital region. That's a lot of fancy talk that says nothing. That, that, is, no, that is no strategy. There's no, there is no new strategy yet. And we've been told now for months that a new strategy was forthcoming and that we would find a way to end this war. We got nothing. Maybe Trump's people will come up with something. Maybe Trump will come up with something himself, either in consultation with them or just by being Trump. But there is no change at all in the posture of the U.S. since Obama. I mean, since uh, Obama left office and Trump became commander in chief, there's really we've got what about eight thousand and cha- eight thousand plus 
U.S. troops on the ground in Afghanistan? Not nearly enough. The general there uh, is saying that he needs a few thousand more. Do we really think that after we've had over 100,000 troops during the Obama administration trying to defeat the Taliban, and and now we're talking openly, people will discuss how we need a a political settlement with the Taliban. We we think we're going to win this war now. Why? What will change? What will be different? We're not going to outlast the Taliban. We don't have greater will than the Taliban. We don't have greater interest in the future of Afghanistan than the Taliban. These are just difficult truths, but this is what's going on there. They are not leaving. They are not going anywhere. How long do we plan to keep troops in Afghanistan? How long do we plan to keep propping up the Afghan national security forces, their military and police, paying billions and billions of dollars? providing them all kinds of logistical support and all kinds of support that we don't even know about just because we're supporting them all over the place, right? I mean, we're doing all kinds of stuff to try to help the Afghans defeat the Taliban. But Taliban are a domestic insurgency with safe haven in Pakistan. They can cross the Afghan-Pak border, know they'll receive assistance from the Haqqani Network, which is just a really a, a faction of the Taliban. Uh, they'll receive assistance from any number of regional actors, Iran, Pakistan. Now there are reports, I told you about them just last week, that the Russians are providing arms to the Taliban. Of course, the Russians deny this, but think about this logically. Why why wouldn't the Russians do that? Sure, maintain some level of plausible deniability, but why not? I see plenty of reasons for them to do it and very few for them not to. They're what they're we're worried that we're going to get caught. They're worried they're going to get caught. So what? They'll say that's not theirs. I've never seen that Kalashnikov before. I mean, you know, it's not hard. It'll not be their problem. So I very much think that uh, we need to have an honest national conversation about what's going on in Afghanistan. And uh, the Trump administration, I, I think President Trump is looking around. It's like, OK, so we have this massive national security advisory complex in place. We've got all these people. All, their only job is to sit around and look at this issue. I was one of those people, the CIA, right? You just sit around and look at certain issues and become as steeped in them as possible, learn as much as you can, and provide facts that can be very granular or at the strategic level to the policymakers, to the decision makers, so that they give the best strategic guidance to the warfighter or to those who are in the chain of command of the warfighter. That, that's what happens. And we've got what to show for months of discussion so far. The answer is nothing. Uh, I think that the Trump administration for a while has been saying that they don't want to give away the playbook. I understand that. But at some point, people start to think it's not a question of giving away the playbook. It's There's no new playbook. And if the old playbook hasn't worked in 15 years, why do we think that anything would change? No one wants to be the person to say that we're done in Afghanistan. We're going to have an embassy there and, you know, maybe some a very limited advisory, train and assist role like we have in other countries, not like we have in, in Iraq and Afghanistan where you've got a major U.S. military presence. And that's going to be it. No one wants to say it, but I also then pose the question for those who believe that we need to stick this out. You know, for those who take the John McCain view, if we have to be there for 50 years, fine. Okay, what do we do then? We're going to send another 50,000, another 100,000 troops in there? So what? So they can take 
Helmand province so they can take Kandahar, give it to the Afghan National Police, give it to the Afghan Army? How long before the Taliban retakes it? Year, two, maybe three? And we'll just keep doing this and doing this and doing this. There, I have not seen any reason to believe, I've seen no facts presented thus far, to suggest that we can expect or we can reasonably expect any different outcome from what's going on in Afghanistan. It's, it's time for honesty on this. If there's not going to be a change in policy, if we're not going to do something differently, then we should just leave. And now it doesn't mean everybody leaves, but it means that there will be no new grand plan, no new grand strategy to defeat the Taliban. We are just going to let the Afghans figure this out. 15 years, folks. 16 years, sorry. 16 years. When is enough enough? When have we decided that we've done all that can be done reasonably in that country to help an ally, yes, to eliminate al-Qaeda, to remove Afghanistan from the global launch pads of jihadist terrorism? But... It's, it's reached the point now where I, I, I'm waiting to hear something new, something different. If, and I, I'm telling you this right now. If the administration comes out and says we're going to surge 5,000 troops and our strategy is going to be let the Afghans take the lead and we'll be in a support role, and it, it, it is just a rehash. It's, it's just round. I'm going to kind of say round two of this. This isn't even the 2.0 version. This is the, you know, the 5.0 version. We've been through this many times. There are realities literally on the ground in Afghanistan. The ground is its own reality. The terrain of Afghanistan, the Hindu Kush mountains coming down through the center of the country like a spine that divides it up, that makes it very difficult to move around the country, that makes governance very hard, that makes infrastructure difficult to build and even harder to maintain, especially with a determined insurgency that knows that destroying infrastructure is a way to ebb at the influence and morale of the government and all those who are hoping for the central government to succeed. I just don't hear anyone speaking about this in a way that makes me think anything will change. And that Trump was in this meeting reportedly thinking about firing a general, they need to do they need to do something and it has to be drastic action, it has to be very different from what we've seen up to this point. Otherwise I promise you this will not change. And we are just extend. We are prolonging the inevitable. We are just extending our time in this country. We will take more losses. We will spend more money, and we will get to no different outcome. So let's let's be real about this. It's either time to go, or something new has to happen, and it has to happen soon. And if that means firing a general and a radical shift in strategy, I don't even know what it would be, but that's what it has to be. Realm of uh, foreign policy, I thought also worth uh, a few moments of our time to think about what happened today with the president signing a uh, signing a bill earlier today that is meant to punish Russia for its inf- uh, interference in the 2016 presidential election, and President Trump signed this. So you know he's. He's supposed to be this puppet of Russia, right, if you believe the—and and this is even apart from the collusion claims. You'll have people in the media telling you—well, they have been telling you all the time that Trump is too favorable towards Russia. He's so nice to Putin, or at least says nice things about Putin, and he has this strange 
love of all things Kremlin. And yet here we are when it comes to implementing policy or when it comes to, again, what he does, not what he says. The president could have vetoed this. I mean, you could argue for sure that he would have faced a lot of backlash if he had done that because people say, oh, my gosh, you know, that it's like he's. It's like he's Putin's twin. I mean, they would have completely freaked out about that. Fine, I understand that. But he signed this, this bill that will give, well, it keeps in place some of the Obama-era sanctions on Russia. It also uh, limits the president's ability to uh, do anything here uh, with regard to the sanctions. So it, it specifically says that the president can't go around some of this. And I just have to say... Um, this is going to achieve what exactly? I mean, it's being reported by ABC News as President Trump signs bill saying it's clearly unconstitutional in some parts. Well, there there are often tensions between what the executive branch, which runs foreign policy, can do and what the Congress can do. And with the moment the Congress starts passing laws that are limiting what the executive branch can do in its conduct of foreign policies— I think there are very there are very real constitutional questions that can arise from that, and yet here we are. Trump signs it. What's the purpose of these Russia sanctions? You'll notice that uh, Democrats have never felt so fierce, so bellicose towards Russia, certainly not even including the Cold War <laughs> Soviet era. Where the, where the Soviets were actively trying to subvert and undermine our government on a regular basis and were threatening nuclear war against us. The Democrats could find excuses for the Soviets for the Russians then. But now, no, no. If you are, if you are soft on Russia in any way, and not even soft on Russia, if you are not an anti-Russia hardliner, the Democrats are so obsessed with power that because they blame Russia for being out of power in this country right now, because they blame Russia for Hillary's loss, they now also force you to be a super hawk on all things Russia, or else you are you're a traitor. I mean, you are just the worst. And it's amazing uh, to watch this play out. Sanctions on Russia will do what exactly? And at, at what point does this become dangerous at, at what point are we exacerbating an already tense situation without getting any benefit from it it's easy for a lot of the members of congress right now to feel like they're brave and, and to feel particularly uh, stalwart because this is going along with what the media is going to say this is a great thing do i think that russia does bad things of course do i think that russia is an aggressor yeah no more so now than it was during the Obama years, though. That That's what the, the, the key shift here is that the Democrats are still obsessed with what Russia did or did not do, depending on who, you, you know, who you're listening to or who you believe uh, in the election. They just won't let it go. And if that means that they are going to be pushing Putin further and further away from any meaningful cooperation, really on any issue. They're willing to do it. They will risk our foreign policy. They will risk our security in any number of ways if it scratches this itch they have to just find 
a way to blame someone other than Hillary Clinton for their election loss. So yeah, we we passed Russia sanctions. Okay, uh, great. I guess this this is a, a cause for for what for celebration. Um, ABC News reporting, by the way, before Trump signed the bill, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson revealed that neither he nor Trump approved of the sanctions, arguing that they would hinder the administration's attempts to restore relations with Russia. The action by the Congress to put these sanctions in place and the way they did, neither the president nor I were very happy about that, Tillerson told reporters yesterday. We were clear that we didn't think it was going to be helpful to our efforts. No, of course it's not going to be helpful. It's not going to change any Russian behavior, by the way. I mean, that's that's foolhardy. But, you know, there were reports from earlier this week that now Congress and, and people are considering arming Ukraine to fight more against Russia. Uh, that's, you know, you'll notice that when it comes to Afghanistan, there are reports about Russia giving, and Russia's like, no, no, we would never do that. I mean, it, that's Afghanistan. Ukraine is right on Russia's doorstep and is considered a very important country to the Russians for a whole bunch of reasons that I don't have time to go and do now. Uh, we're going to start arming the Ukrainians? You know, at, at some point it is worth asking ourselves, will we go to war with Russia over Ukraine? Because uh, I wouldn't. But I'm starting to feel like the Democrats at least want to pretend that they would, and even the pretense of that is dangerous. Now, um, let's uh, get into something that uh, I saw last night on uh, Tucker Carlson's show over on Fox. So there's this guy who's on who is from the or he's a leader of the movement for California to succeed uh, sorry to secede from the US. And he he said something that that Tucker sees on right away. It was very interesting. I think it's a much more widespread belief than many people realize on the left and that is that the uh punishing of the middle class that the Democrats are constantly engaged in, that the uh, the flight from many of these urban areas that just working people uh, have to uh, engage in because they can't pay the ridiculous taxes, they don't want to deal with the uh, services that are just bad and low quality. So they, the working, I don't like the term middle class, just, just the, the earning class, people that work that have jobs that are trying to pay their bills, that are trying to do their best to support themselves and their families, uh, they don't get much attention from Democrats. Although Democrats talk about them a lot, their policies don't really benefit them. And in fact, Democrats have a certain degree of contempt for the middle class. If you don't fall into one of the protected categories that Democrats are always trying to come up with new ways to capitalize on them for political reasons. Democrats don't have all that much use for you, and because they don't have that much use for them, they don't really care about them, and they don't mind if the policies that they push are destructive to those people. So you get discussions like this one from last night on Tucker's show. In regards to middle class leaving, uh, that's actually a, a good thing. Um, we, we, need, we need these spots opened up for the new wave of, of immigrants to come up. It's what we do. We're exporting our middle class to the United States. You guys should be thanking us for that. Not only that, you know, when our middle class does move out to Texas and to Colorado, they're taking our values out to the United States. They need to make room for a new wave of immigrants. Hmm. That's, that's quite, a, quite a statement, isn't it? You're on national TV. You're going to say that. 
the the Democrats, it's it's amazing that they haven't yet figured out that what led to Trumpism, they haven't dealt with it at all. They've done nothing to make up for their deficit with people, not just in the key states of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, where Hillary losing was such a shock to Democrats and, of course, was decisive in the election. Well, maybe it was Russia, but no, it was that Hillary didn't campaign in the Midwest and was arrogant and was a bad candidate and was entitled. And I could go, ah, why are you so mean? But we'll talk about her another time. We'll have to revisit uh, Hillary Clinton's book. What happened? That'll be fun. Um, maybe we should, I should, let's create like a, a drop or at any time we're not really sure what's going on, just have Hillary appear. What happened? That's her book. Uh, so you have this guy going out there saying that people need to make room for a new new wave of, of immigrants. There is a a cultural and it's very widespread on the coasts and in and in the major cities in the blue strongholds across the country. There is just this this contempt for, of course, traditional values, but there's a a contempt for people who are not looking to be overly politicized, aren't progressive in their views, just want to, you know, want a fair day's pay for, a, you know, a, a good day's work and want to go about their lives and not be harassed and not be threatened and not be talked down to. And the, the Democrats are so condescending towards them and they, they can't fix it yet. They, they haven't been able to fix it. They haven't been able to figure out why they have this disconnect. Uh, and whenever they say this stuff about how immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do, I mean, this all ties together, right? It, it, it syncs up with what we were talking about earlier on in the show, which is this skills-based immigration bill. Uh, we've been told all this stuff for a long time about immigration that's not true. And yet the moment that we start to revisit the issue of what our immigration laws actually say— they shout, you know, the Democrats will shout you down and say, oh, you're so horrible. You're so racist. What are you going to do about these people that want to come into this country? They need us. It's like, well, are, are they better able to compete in the U.S. economy? Or are they better able to contribute than Americans on average who were born here? Because if that's the case, wouldn't they be fine where they're coming? Why are they so desperate to come into America then? Oh, because they... You know, in their home country, I, I know what the answer would be. Well, in their home country, the, there's corruption and there's all this other stuff. Okay. Well, there are other countries. I mean, there are plenty of other places, too, where you can apply to be an immigrant You can, if you have such great skills. And it, the arguments just all collapse, right? If the jobs that uh, Americans won't do are jobs that require skills and that contribute so much to the economy, well— I guess we should just bring in an endless amount of immigrants, right? Well, if And I saw this today, by the way, on Twitter uh, about growth and about immigrants are so necessary for growth. If more immigrants means more economic growth, then we shouldn't take in a million. We should take in 10 million. But why is 10 million too many? Why is that a problem? Why does that begin to feel like maybe that's too much? I mean, you get the the left has no answer for that. right? The, I, I don't know. I, I guess some on the left, there are some for sure, and there are even some— just smarmy libertarians, yeah, they're out there, who will say that uh, we should be open borders, that 10 million, 100 million, a billion, doesn't matter. It's all, it's all great. It's all great. And they don't seem to get it that there's a resentment from Americans at that kind of thinking. And the resentment is not bad. It's not bigoted. It's completely understandable. 
That actually makes sense. Special treat today and in studio with me here in New York City, no less. The Freedom Hut has Freedom Hut has room for three, which is very exciting. We've got Guy Benson and Mary Catherine Ham with me now to discuss their book, End of Discussion, which I was an early ad- ad- adopter of this book because two years ago we had them on the show to talk about it. But it's new and improved with a new chapter on Trump. We've got Guy Benson, political editor for Townhall.com, Fox News contributor Mary Catherine Ham. With The Federalist, a site that I love, by the way, and CNN. CNN. So let's talk a bit about uh, let's talk a bit about your book. End of discussion. It's new. It's exciting. Guy, we'll start with you. Don't get to Mary. We'll get to whatever else you want. Well, I would just say when we did like deja vu here, because we did this interview two years ago about the original edition of the book, which is about how the left is shutting down debate in America and trying to disqualify people who disagree rather than actually debate them on any substance. And one week after the book came out, we were on our book tour. We were here in Manhattan watching this man come down an escalator and announce that he was running for president. And here we are these many months later, and he is the president of the United States, Donald Trump. And we sort of felt like between Donald Trump getting elected president and with the city of Berkeley, California, on fire, maybe we should revisit the topic here and— put out a paperback edition of End of Discussion with a Trump chapter because I don't want to brag too much, but we kind of called it. Like, this this book was ahead of its time. In fact, talk that, about the, the uh, L.A. Times thing. Oh, yeah, someone from the L.A. Times contacted me and said, hey, I've just seen this really this really relevant book has just come out. And I said, oh, it's two years old. Well, there's a paperback coming, so we'll, we can I can get you something soon. Um, but, yeah, this is this is an ongoing problem and something that when we were writing the book, we thought, you know, this sort of, weaponized PC culture that is shutting people down and shutting them up is going to lead to a backlash. We did not call that the backlash (laughs) would be President Donald Trump, but that is part of the story of how he became president. A bunch of people felt like they couldn't possibly be good enough to suit the liberal betters who tell them these things, and they therefore hired a bully of their own to fight that fight. Uh, And so... That's where we are. And as we note in the book, the left is taking it really in stride and re- reevaluating how they do things. And so, wait, just guy, kidding. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but but the more we've seen about why people voted for Trump, I think initially there was this sense that there were a lot of complicated economic reasons for it. And, and, and there are certainly some of those, but also the cultural aspect of this and the cultural uh, backlash, as yep. you said, or, or the, the sense of the pendulum going back to the other side. All of the recent polling research stretching back in, in recent months has shown that that's really a, a prime motivator here for Trump voters and has been all along. 100%. And the thing, Buck, and you know because you've spoken with them uh, over the last year and a half, two years, when you speak to a lot of Trump supporters who are conservatives, they are willing to overlook character issues. They are willing to overlook temperamental issues. They are willing to overlook policy and ideological issues because the guy fights the other side and fights dirty and fights hard. And there's a lot of people on the right who are like, you've been bullying us culturally for years now. We want someone who's going to punch back. We're willing to subordinate those concerns because this guy is doing what we need in their opinion. And one of the things that we're sort of talking to our friends on the left about is like, you guys, we told you about it two years in the book. There's a difference between convincing people to shut up and actually convincing people of things. And 
The left has been pretty good at getting people nervous to say what they really believe, but very clearly not convincing people because Donald Trump, a lot of people went in their voting booth and decided, nope, this is the guy for me, yoink, and now he's president. We're speaking to Mary Catherine Hamm and Guy Benson here in the Freedom Hut today about their book, End of Discussion, How the Left's Outrage Industry Shuts Down Debate, Manipulates Voters, and Makes America Less Free and Fun. They have an updated edition in paperback. Now, Mary Catherine, has the Trump phenomenon been an improvement over some of what you talk about in end of discussion, or is this just another version of now people wanting to shut down the other side? Right. So this is something we address and we talk about how Donald Trump is sort of equal parts disease and cure. Well, he's creating his own outrages all the time. That is part of how he does business. And it's part of what has been effective for him. And one of the things we argue is that I, I totally understand why people wanted to vote for Donald Trump and that they wanted this fighter and that that fight needs to be waged. There is another part of this where we argue and have always an end of discussion and in our lives that we don't want to ratchet this up at every turn with the left, partly because they control so many levels of levers of culture that they will win the outrage battle. And the other reason is it's not a good way to live life. It's really unfun. It really doesn't make the best of freedom uh, when you're having to be constantly offended or pretend to be constantly offended on behalf of whatever team you're on. I live in Manhattan. I grew up here. I have to tell you that, and I know you deal with the same thing all the time, D.C. and D.C., right? So it's probably, although everyone in D.C. speaks about politics all the time, I guess. But yes, it's a weird he, place. Here, yeah, he, here in Manhattan, at least, people are like, well, you know, don't you get tired of talking about politics at work? And then, and I'm like, well, there's no outside of, because I don't. That doesn't really, <laughs> unless someone knows me. Yeah, you know, <laughs> people are like, oh, you do a radio show. What do you think about Trump? I'm like, it's getting late. <laughs> so I try. <laughs> To avoid oh, the, I try to avoid the casual Let political me pour talk you with, a drink. Yeah, with, with strangers. But uh, speaking about the, the, the personal aspects of this, I'm assuming uh, both Guy and Mary, as you've gone around perhaps even to talk about your book, End of Discussion, you've probably come up against people who have wanted to end the discussion, who yes. have told you that you are right-wing fascist Trump lovers or maybe Trump haters, combination thereof. Oh, yeah. yes. How has that been? Both of those things. I enjoy it from, like, just... Both sides. Yeah, it's incoming. The thing is, we really go after the left much harder in the book because of the reason we think that they are primarily responsible for this phenomenon. Particularly on college campuses. I was going to say, have you you guys been protested on campuses or have you gotten any of that? Uh, Didn't you get in uh, Politicon recently? Weren't people trying to heckle you? It was was mostly Ann Coulter, but I was on stage as well. And And this is a free speech panel. A free speech panel. The Princeton College Republicans had to get extra security for us because we were deemed controversial speakers by the university. Right. Um, it ended up being fine, but it's just it's it's ludicrous. But the point I was going to make is Princeton, please. They're not going to stop shaking their martinis long enough to actually heckle you guys. <laughs> I, I can know. say it. I'll, I, I've spent some time these, down there. Some of these elite schools have a pretty radical strain. Princeton isn't necessarily one of them, although they also employ Cornell West. Yeah, you weren't at Brown. I mean, there weren't people walking around Brown, like Yale. naked hippies or something. I mean, right. It's crazy. But, but we look forward to that speaking yeah, engagement. Yes, right. I, please, by all means. Uh, so <laughs> academia is controlled by the left. The media is controlled mostly by the left. Hollywood is controlled by the left. So for those reasons, the left is the worst uh, perpetrator of this stuff. But as we are seeing, there is a strong element of this on the right. There is an impulse to silence. There is an impulse to shut down and call names. And there was a poll just last week, YouGov Economist, a plurality of Republicans said that the courts should be allowed to shut down biased media outlets. Like, that is bonkers and scary, and that's our side. So we're against any of that. We just think the left is more effective at the silencing, which is why we're coming after them. 
but we should guard against it on our side too. So Mary Catherine, you are seeing people on on the right in uh, and polling and also I suppose just across the board, uh, you're coming across people that you talk to who think that they should be able to do what the left does. That's very troubling. Right. Well, and that's what we sort of attempt to discourage because uh, I don't want to live life like they do. Like going to the grocery store and finding a pasta that offends me because someone on the board supported some political thing I don't agree with. I don't want to live that life. I just want to eat pasta, a lot of it. Um, And so I think... We should be cautious about that because I don't think it's a game that we're going to win. And so what we try to do in the way we wrote End of Discussion is that it does go after the left and it is a book that the right will enjoy. But it's also a book you can hand to your liberal sister-in-law and she's not going to hate you for it. Because we need some of those folks to understand what's going on here and that the shutting down of speech, particularly on college campuses in its most gross form, uh, is bad for America, and it's bad for talking to people. It's bad for politics and relationships and all of this. Um, and so we attempt to bring some of those folks to understand with us. And some of, we've gotten some pretty rave Amazon reviews through the years. Yes, so we actually have gotten some good <laughs> reviews from left-of-center folks who've read the book. One guy in particular on Amazon, like Jim from Iowa or something, raved, Benson and Ham are not monsters, which we thought – we thought about putting that on the cover of yeah. the of the paperback. Really that making a, progress. A ringing endorsement. That reminds me. I was <laughs> I was always jealous. I thought it was the greatest uh, the greatest book cover quote ever. I think it was on Mark Stein's America Alone that he had one of the Saudi royal family saying like this book is trash and it was his main <laughs> quote. It Fabulous. was great. Yeah, good time. So sometimes that's that's a, a good way to go. Um, but I have been hearing and reading fabulous things about the book. So uh, congrats, you guys. The paperback is out now. We have an updated, expanded edition including some Trump stuff, which is great. End of discussion is the book. Mary Catherine Hamm and Guy Benson are the authors. Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere, team. Is that right? That's yes. right. Endofdiscussion.com. It's all there. Yeah. Fantastic. And thank you so much for coming to actually hang out down here in our Tribeca studio. This is a studio. sweet little hut Love it. you got. Thank yeah, you. The, 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 hut is, the hut is more spacious than my apartment, I can tell you that. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Should our State Department, which you and I pay for with our taxes, let's just all say that right up front and keep it in mind as we go forward this discussion, should our State Department be promoting democracy around the world? Is that, in fact, a necessary component of U.S. strategy vis-a-vis dealing with the rest of the world and our relationships on the global stage? Now, I know that for the journalists who reported on this in the last couple of days, including the Washington Post, which originally broke the story, this is just further evidence for them, at least, of the uh, amateurism of Rex Tillerson in foreign affairs and, of course, of the barbarous nature of Donald Trump and his uh, top people, that they reject what has been longstanding State Department policy and, and a mission statement, really, from within state that we are going to export democracy and democratic principles all over the world. And I understand that. We often refer to our own country as a democracy, even though, of course, technically it is a republic. Uh, but democratic principles, ideas of the people voting for their representatives and that being a necessary step for the legitimacy of a state— uh, those are those are good ideas to be sure, but do we really want to support them all over the world? Now you get into a position of having to look at the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. 
Let me explain. For example, when the tyrant Mubarak of Egypt, who was, from our perspective at least, a benevolent tyrant, when he was kicked out of office and thrown into prison, and when there was a coup, and then there were elections afterwards, the Muslim Brotherhood won. When you have elections in Gaza by Palestinians, Hamas wins. If you were to have elections in Saudi Arabia, I assure you, which you have not ever had, but if you ever did have elections in Saudi Arabia, I assure you a hardline Islamist party would win. Uh, So we have to look now and say, is it always the case that we want to not just export the principles of democracy as an idea, but to support democratic institutions all over the world always and at all times? For the purposes of consistency, for being on the same page all the time and for not looking like we are in any way being hypocritical, sure, we would like to believe, we would like to think that America's role in the world, well, I should say that the State Department, specifically our diplomats, our pinstriped policy wonks traveling all over the world, sharing their thoughts on stuff, um, that we would like to think that they could talk about the glories of democracy without necessarily harming our immediate national security and political interests abroad. But as I was able to just come up with from the top of my head, it's just not always the case. And part of, I think, the legacy of the Arab Spring is that in countries where you don't have a population that is, uh, well, a majority of the population, I should, I should say, believes in secular rule and believes in what we consider to be basic human rights and freedoms, uh, democracy just becomes its own form of tyranny. In fact, if you go back to Plato's The Republic, you will recall that the worst form of government, of all governments, is ruled by the mob, oclocracy, that in fact a singular tyrant, a single tyrant, one person making all the decisions, one person in charge, may be unjust, may be violent and vicious, but at least stuff will get done. Whereas the mob from the street that comes together and seizes power, and even if it does does so through democratic means, keep in mind Hitler, keep in mind Hitler was elected democratically, I I could go through any number of historical cases where you'd say, hold on a second, Uh, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, who I'll be talking to you about in just a moment, elected democratically. So the outcome is certainly not assured just because people can vote. As we know, there can be popular mass delusions and there can be moments in time when there is really a form of mass psychosis that overtakes a society. And of course, is what Democrats think is happening right now, I should note. But that it can overtake a society and otherwise sane and rational people are all of a sudden making uh, very imprudent decisions about who they give power to. But democracy promotion as a State Department mission, which I should note, they have not officially abandoned it, but it's now up for discussion because there's this internal memo that the Washington Post wrote about from the State Department, and it's just the absence of democracy promotion is being taken as a change in mission, which I, it, it is. But promoting democratic principles into, in countries where you don't have a civil society and a rule of law mentality that would support 
a consistent and continuous democracy is not in and of itself a good. I just went over for you some cases where we certainly disapprove of the end result of a democratic process, but that's really what we have to keep in mind, that democracy is in its simplest form just a process. I was talking to you, what was it, yesterday about how Democrats in this country are obsessed with process because it's a means of uh, it, it becomes self-justifying. I like to refer to government bureaucracy as the self-licking ice cream cone. Well, in some countries, having elections just becomes another way of propping up the authoritarians at the top or the single-party state, the one-party state at the top of the political pyramid. It's just a, it becomes a talking point, right? It's pro forma. Oh, yes, we had democratic elections. If you didn't vote for us, you risked imprisonment or worse. But, yeah, we totally had elections. Therefore, we are— legitimate. Democracy, or at least democratic processes, are just that. And they don't, in and of, it, uh, in and of themselves, have any intrinsic moral worth. Uh, because, as I said, you can have bad outcomes from it, but also if you have a society that is not prepared for it, or if you have a society that does not have uh, respect for the tradition beyond the initial outcome, you can get to where the Muslim Brotherhood is on elections, which is, yeah, sure, one, uh, you know, one election, one vote, one time, right? Or, or d democracy is like a train. You get off the train when you're done with it. And this is a major concern now. As we look at what's going on across the Muslim world, uh, the tyrants that run some of these countries or the strongmen that are in charge or the single party or the ruling family, whatever it may be, we're talking about the Jordanian kingdom, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, and, and, you know, at, at a certain level, it also becomes an issue of we or in this country, you have Democrats who have been subscribing to this theory for a long time that all people everywhere want the same things, that the mass of the American people are no more law abiding are no more ethical or moral than the mass of name any other country. Well, when you push them a bit more on this, you'd say, well, hold on a second. You're going to tell me that there's no difference between the aggregate ethical compass, if that's a thing. I just made it up, but let's say that's a thing. There's no difference between the way that the people, the people, generally speaking, in the U.S. think about things, act, and hold themselves than people in North Korea or in Iran. There's really no difference whatsoever. No, that's, that's silly, right? That's, that's quite strange. But if you can establish that there are those differences, then you can also establish that some countries uh, are not going to use democratic processes to get to outcomes that we like, that we can support. And if the purpose of the State Department is to support U.S. interests, which I believe it is, and not to pursue some kind of internationalist U.N. multilater multilateral altruism, which I think a lot of the Democrats, the Pelosi's, the Schumer's, etc., of the world believe, well, then we shouldn't just be promoting democracy everywhere and at all times. We should be promoting principles that undergird democracies, but we shouldn't just be saying everyone should go to a democracy because that may not be in our interest. And while it's uncomfortable for some to say that or to realize that, it is the truth. And I care more about the truth than what makes people feel warm and fuzzy including Democrats, who are going to use this, of course, as I said, as a political cudgel against Trump, if in fact this is what the State Department does. Socialism strikes again in Venezuela. Latest out of that country from uh, last few days is that they held a 
sham election to uh, put people in a position to rewrite the Constitution. I mean, if you were trying to come up with a tyrant's playbook, if you were looking to do fascism 101 or uh, an idiot's guide to autocracy, I would have to think that a complete rewrite of the Constitution based on a sham uh, election to put people in a position to come up with what that new Constitution would be, I would think that would be very high on the list. Now, this is a country that I know people will point to and they will say, oh, look, this is the result of any number of global economic uh, issues, right? That the, the biggest problem in Venezuela is not the Bolivarian revolutionary ideology, is not its rejection of American leadership in the Western Hemisphere and of international capitalist norms. No, the, their, their big problem, you'll hear the defenders say, and there are fewer and fewer defenders these days, but their biggest issue, if you uh, want to listen to those who are still taking these kinds of positions, is the drop in global oil prices. I mean, oil is really low right now, and it's below $50 a barrel, I think. And that's absolutely painful for countries that are largely reliant on natural resources, on, on oil, on fossil fuel, for paying their bills. Um, now, this is there's only so far you can take this. And in the case of Venezuela, you have a country with the largest proven oil reserves in the world. In fact, larger proven oil reserves than even Saudi Arabia has. So it's a particularly useful example of just how terribly uh, a government can destroy an economy and can take what is actually a, a very uh, good economic situation and can make it into something that, or at least an economic positive, and can just fritter it all away. I mean, can just decide that they're going to, through crappy policies, uh, run a country into the ground. And now it's on the brink of civil war, or at least there are some who think that that could be around the corner. Because once you start changing around uh, the constitution in a country where you already have, in effect, a form of, um, of martial law, you have Venezuelans who have been killed, over 100 killed in these protests, but countless others at this point have been intimidated, have faced physical violence, and have been put through uh, any number of uh, indignities because of this government that's just run by uh, a clown. I mean, Maduro has no idea what he's doing, but he is a populist demagogue in the truest sense of demagoguery, which is a person who says things he knows to be untrue to people he knows to be uh, idiots or thinks to be idiots, whichever one you want to use there. But he does say things he knows to be untrue to people he thinks are idiots, and he's gotten very far with that. And Chavez did the same thing. If you're looking for one reason, um, and by the way, Maduro is already threatening prison for his adversaries. The violence is out of control in the streets. And Venezuela is close to a failed state, if you would not call it a failed state already. And there was widespread allegations of fraud for this vote that just happened. Uh, the country is possibly going to face another round of international sanctions led by the United States, which could cause a default. It already has hyperinflation. I mean, every problem that you can look at for a country's 
economy and, and all the major issues that we warn about when we talk about what happens when you put a, an autocrat who is also an imbecile in charge of a substantial and, and formally sophisticated and pretty well off, at least well off for the region country, when you put someone in charge who is always able to come up with another excuse uh, and is just cracking down more on dissent as his failures become more apparent, you get a spiraling effect. And that's what's going on right now in Venezuela. I do think that it's a uh, situation where the U.S. is not really in any position to do much right now other than just sit back and say, wow, look at how uh, terrible this is for the Venezuelan people. Uh, adding more economic misery into the equation with additional sanctions because of a vote that is really a joke, that doesn't seem to be very likely to help anything. And I also wanted to note that even with all of this going on, this is what's so astonishing in the reporting, even with all the things that we see happening, uh, there are people, and you can still find them on the streets, who support this government, support Maduro, Nicolas Maduro, uh, who is now a—he's the president, but he's really a tyrant. And they think that the government is going to fix this for them. Uh, it is, it's astonishing to see this, but sure enough, you have in the Wall Street Journal uh, somebody saying the following. They have a reporter on the street asking questions, and— Someone said, quote, I voted to support the fatherland to ensure the economy approves. And this is according to a woman named Anna, who is a member of the local food distribution committee in the former socialist bastion of La Pastora in central Caracas. Caracas being the capital of Venezuela. Uh, any, anyone who is a member of a committee in the context of a socialist country that's in a free fall, you want to be very wary of listening to them on just about any issue whatsoever. Uh, you also had, just to give you a sense of what goes on in a country like Venezuela, where they say they're having a vote, uh, you had people told that they would be fired. You had, because uh, of course the, the economy, one of the reasons, or some of the reasons that it's in such dire straits are that the government has been controlling prices. So the government says that toilet paper is 50 cents a roll, and then a week later, there's no toilet paper on the shelves in stores. And then the government blames the, the greedy store owners. And th this has been played out time and again uh, as for, by the Maduro government with, for example, the seizure of private corporations, private assets and capital under the guise of social justice. You see, you can't talk about socialism without also quickly turning into a social justice discussion. Uh, and that's what I think makes so many of uh, the SJW, so many of the social justice warriors in America, uncomfortable when it comes to talking about Venezuela. Uh, there is a recognition, I think, that the same arguments, or at least right now there's the recognition because things are so bad in Venezuela, there's a recognition that many of the same arguments that are used in support of a more redistributive economy, a more state command and control economy in the Venezuelan case are, are the arguments that we hear in this country as well. And we are at a point right now where you have Chuck Schumer and other prominent Democrats speaking openly about single payer as a possibility for our health care system. Well, right after single payer comes socialized medicine, because once the government's writing all the checks and that becomes too expensive, 
then the government will come out and say, we need to control costs. And to really control costs, we need to control the means of healthcare production. And then you have truly socialized medicine when the government runs and owns the hospitals, pays the doctors and nurses, determines what will be uh, acceptable care and what care you will get and what is not. Uh, then you're just entirely in the hands of the state. And I should note that when the state is making decisions about who gets health care and who doesn't, the state is making decisions about which innocent uh, citizens live and which ones die. And so therefore, politics is a zero-sum game where lives literally hang in the balance, right? When you're a constituency that can either get a procedure covered or not, it may mean that people don't live as a result. So you can just see how this becomes more acrimonious. But I also think it, it's more likely to lead to a one-party state, because as you get further and further down this road of state control of, well, in the case of the U.S. discussion right now, healthcare, in the case of Venezuela, everything, it's harder to turn it off. The state never views itself as failing. The state always views some other issue, right? The, the, and the statists will uh, go along with it, and they'll provide cover. They'll provide the necessary excuses for it. And so that's how in Venezuela you have people that are saying the state needs more authority, right? This should be a, a reminder to all of us. The state has failed. It is a failed, I said before, it is a failing state. I maybe would say now it's a failed state. Uh, but the failure is always blamed on some other entity. It can never be on the people who have taken this power into their hands in the first place. And just like you see here with our own healthcare system in Venezuela, the bureaucrats, the government officials, the demagogues, the populists, they always have somebody else to blame. And just give them more power and money, and they say they'll fix it. Team Buck, today, August 2nd, is the anniversary of one of the most important battles in all of history. I want to take you back, if you won't mind coming with me, to August 2nd, 216 B.C., we are in the midst of the Second Punic War, one of the death struggles, one of the existential battles between the great superpowers of the time, ancient Rome, the mighty Roman Empire, and Carthage. Now, before I go into the details, and we'll just do a quick overview today of the Battle of Cannae or Cannae, Cannae, these are all acceptable ways of saying it. Uh, I like Cannae, but people have their own, their own version. I want to give you some of the background here. You had, at this time, during the Second Punic War between ancient Rome and the city-state of Carthage, one of the greatest generals in history, Hannibal, squaring off against a mighty Roman Empire, but one that had a military that still had political leadership as a much more important qualification for its generals, then, or political connections, really, then military tactics and strategy. And this led to one of the great disasters in all military history for Rome, and of course for Hannibal, one of the most impressive victories. In fact, it was a victory that later would be studied by generals, tacticians, historians, strategists for centuries, and was a fear, the double envelopment at Cannae was a fear of European modern armies, including in the First and Second World War. This informed the battlefield strategies of uh, the French, of the Germans, and it was on the minds of those who have been fighting, again, ever since this incredibly important 
216 BC uh, enormous battle in Cannae. So let's get, or Cannae, so I'm going to say it different ways. So let's get into it a bit. You had Hannibal, this incredibly talented general, crossing with this mighty army, crossing the Pyrenees in Spain and then the Alps with a, a military force that people were shocked at his ability to even move it. He moved elephants famously. I mean, this has resonated throughout the ages. Hannibal moved elephants across the Alps. And then with this, uh, this combined force that was taking along the way, uh, Gauls adding to its ranks, you know, the, the core of the army came, came from North Africa, which is where Carthage is. And in what is today's Tunisia, that's where the ancient city of Carthage was found. So Hannibal, with his army that was picking up along the way, it, it started out with Carthaginian heavy infantry and very famously Numidian cavalry. Uh, and then Hannibal had this, uh, this group of mercenaries and volunteers that they had picked up to try and plunder the mighty Roman Empire. And part of his plan was to use various villages and, uh, and other uh, cities to join together against Rome because he was always saying that the yoke of Rome was so heavy on their shoulders. It should also be, also be noted that Hannibal's father, in fact, was the, a general in the first Punic War uh, against, and Punic just meaning having to do with Carthage, by the way. And, and Hannibal's father had main, made him swear a blood oath never to establish a peace with Rome and, and to be willing to fight till the absolute bitter very end against the Roman Empire. So this very brilliant, ruthless, by the way, brutal general Hannibal um, had moved across. He traveled all the way from Spain across Gaul, modern France, and over the Alps into uh, Italy proper, what was then the main, the main uh, areas of, of the Roman Empire, of course, with Rome, the city of Rome at its core and at its center. And there were a series of military defeats, including Trebia and Lake Trasimene, where the Romans were just routed. They, were, they just got their butts kicked by Hannibal with his mixed force, his usage of some elephants, but most importantly, his understanding of command and maneuver. Uh, Hannibal would set battlefield traps for the Romans because he knew how they fought, and he would just annihilate these uh, numerically superior forces with his veteran, very well-trained uh, actual combatants. These weren't just uh, people that had been called together under the banner of Rome because they had no choice. This was not a conscript army. These were real fighters that Hannibal had at his disposal, and he used them to tremendous effect leading up to the uh, what, what could have been the death knell for the Roman Empire at Cannae. Now, the battle took place in the southeastern part, really the heel of the boot of Italy, if you will, and it was a, a battle between... The numbers are always, when you're talking about ancient times, and uh, Livy is the great historian of this battle. The war with Hannibal is a timeless classic. It is, in fact, really up there uh, with, uh, with Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, which was the great fight of that time between Athens and Sparta, uh, the greatest battles really fought in terms of 
struggles for survival and the impact on, well, the future of Western civilization of the Roman era uh, had to do with the, the fight against the Punic Wars, the fights against Carthage. Now, uh, you had the series of Roman defeats at the hands of Hannibal and his uh, incredibly versatile and skilled uh, army. And he met finally after days of maneuver and trying to pick a superior uh, spot on the battlefield for uh, actually engaging the enemy. You had these massive forces squaring off against each other in this southeastern, on this battlefield in southeastern Rome. Now, one of the big problems here is that you had on the Roman side of things two uh, consuls, two generals who uh, were just one, they were opposites and they took turns when it came to command. Uh, so you had Lucius Aemilius Paulus and Gaius Terentius Vero, and they would switch day to day. Imagine that for a second. Imagine you had one four star calling all the shots today, one day, and the next day you had a different four star, and they're moving the whole army for a conclusive battle against a foe. I mean, they're they're maneuvering for a battle of annihilation against the enemy, all supposed to all supposed to happen in one day, and you're switching generals day in and day out. Now, this is where you have... Oh, by the way, in terms of numbers, I, I have to give you numbers here. It is estimated that on the Roman side of this Battle of Cannae, remember, August 2nd, which is why we're talking about it today, 216 B.C., on the Roman side, you had about 50,000... I'm sorry, about... 80 to 90,000 all in. Um, a big preponderance of that would have been Roman infantry with the Allied infantry. You had a few thousand in cavalry, and then you had a garrison nearby in a fort. The Romans would build fortified forward positions for their camps. Now, on the Carthaginian side, you had about 50,000. So, slightly less than a two to one advantage overall. Uh, a majority of them um, being heavy infantry. But then you had a pretty substantial cavalry contingent and about 10 to 20,000 all in light. I'm sorry, 10,000 all in cavalry. And you also have some light infantry thrown into the mix, too. So you've got about a 10,000 cavalry contingent, this Numidian cavalry, which were incredibly versatile and very seasoned fighters. And then we get into the actual battle itself. Now, it was typical at the time for the the Romans were planning on using massed infantry forces right in the center of their line of battle to just overwhelm and smash the enemy. Uh, they also were hoping that the river, that they're, in their initial deployment, that the, uh, the river that was nearby, the Alphidus, would prevent them from being drastically uh, outmaneuvered. They could use that on the, to protect their flank. That was the idea. So the Romans were planning a full frontal smash assault. And in fact, they even made the depths of their ranks deeper with the idea that they would just use overwhelming military might and numbers to crush, smash right through the center of the enemy. Uh, Hannibal, for his part, was prepared, was really springing a trap for them. He had uh, Hasdrubal leading the cavalry on the left of the Carthaginian line, and you had Hanno with 30, over 3,000 Numidian cavalry on the right. And what ended up happening here was that you had 
Hannibal intentionally had the center of his line. Remember, this is ancient warfare uh, where you have heavily armored infantry with some cavalry on the flanks just smashing into each other, fighting in ranks, fighting in formation. So Hannibal had his center pull back. And as they were pulling back, he had his cavalry go after the Roman cavalry. And then he also had his two flanks continue to extend. So you had a concave formation. You think of it like the Romans were pushing into the center of a of a uh, of a horseshoe and they're pushing into the indentation of the horseshoe and as they were doing that as the mass of roman soldiers was going deeper and deeper into the center of this horseshoe of carthaginian troops the two sides the two flanks of the carthaginians were extending out and then you had a complete encirclement of the romans both flanks were able to come together in the roman rear and so what started out as two enormous massed armies became one army pushing into another at with remember the Carthaginians were were falling back in line to allow this advance the Romans became more and more enthusiastic about this because they thought oh we're crushing their lines or pushing them back meanwhile on the sides the Carthaginians were flanking them and then were able to complete that with a full encirclement and this also also called a a pincer movement uh, the words that Livy used to describe what happened were, quote, so many thousands of Romans were dying, some whom their wounds pinched by the morning cold had roused as they were rising up, covered with blood from the midst of the heaps of slain were overpowered by the enemy. Some were found with their heads plunged into the earth, which they had excavated, having thus, as it appeared, made pits for themselves and having them and having suffocated themselves. Uh, you had... Uh, tens of thousands of Romans killed in this one battle, in this one exchange. And keep in mind, these are all people who are either killed by being hacked, stabbed, or crushed to death in the battle line. Uh, this, is not in, this is not the advanced mechanical butchery of the First and Second World War where you saw many tens of thousands dying from machine gun fire. This was the slow, almost methodical, mechanical killing of thrusting spears and and hacking swords and close quarters battle with axes and whatever implements were at hand. Uh, it was incredibly bloody work, and it was, uh, for the Carthaginians, an incredible victory and put Hannibal down in history as one of the greatest generals, one of the greatest tacticians of all time, uh, to be outnumbered by the great military power uh, really, of the time, and one of the greatest powers for its time in all history, to be outnumbered almost two to one, and to only lose in the in the low thousands of Carthaginian troops, and to kill, I mean, by Polybius's estimate, you had 70,000 killed. Now, that's probably a, a high number, but you did have a vast majority of the Roman army absolutely annihilated in this battle. And, you know, later on, uh, Napoleon's great victory at Austerlitz would be compared to Cannae. Um, what Hannibal did on that day of August 2nd, uh, 216 B.C. in the Second Punic War became the benchmark for all great future battles, but also was a, an early harbinger of 
what could happen when great armies face each other, that it wasn't a 10 or 20 percent casualty rate that could be expected, but you could have wars of complete annihilation on the battlefield. Um, I will leave it there for now, team. The Battle of Cannae, August 2nd, 216 B.C. Of all the things that uh, you would steal, I got to say, a 100-pound tortoise, I would think, would be kind of low on the list. But sure enough, here in New York, someone decided to take a 100-pound African spurred tortoise named Millennium from the Alley Pond Environmental Center a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so they stole a 100-pound turtle. And yeah, uh, the turtle, though, I should say, has been returned to the proper authorities, and now someone is in custody for, for grand larceny. I, you know, I've never understood why people have reptiles for pets. Uh, I just moved into a new building. They asked me if I had a pet, and, and I said, no, you know, I don't have one, and you know, not yet at least, and I want to get a dog. And the uh, guy that I was talking to who works the building, was like, well, what about a cat? And I'm like, you know, I, I just, cats are great. They're just not my thing. They're, they're just not my thing. If I'm going to go with a pet, I'm going to get a dog. But the only other thing that I ever thought about, and I, I might be oversharing now, team, I always thought it would be kind of fun to have a pet hedgehog, um, which, you know, I, I saw somebody once who had a, a pet hedgehog. In fact, I dated a girl in college whose family had a little patch of uh, pet hedgehogs I don't know and I thought they were kind of cute and fun and if you couldn't go with a full canine you know a hedgehog might be an interesting way to go they're not legal in New York City though I, I would not be allowed to have a hedgehog so then I look at the other options and people say well maybe you can get yourself a terrapin which well no that would be a, a sorry that would be a sea turtle right that would be very bad they're like endangered uh, no I can get myself a tortoise of some kind but reptile brains aren't large enough to have attachments to people, as far as I understand. Not trying to offend any reptile lovers out there, but having a pet tortoise or snake, I've never really understood it. And I'm going to put this out there. I knew a girl in high school who had a pet boa constrictor, and I'm just going to say I had some questions, okay? I had some questions. I, I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say... What exactly about having an animal with a tiny brain that only eats, sleeps, and kills things and has no fur, nothing warm or fuzzy about it, it's literally a cold-blooded animal, what part of that is appealing as a pet? Uh, I just didn't really understand that. She was an unusual young lady. I will put that out there. Um, the worst, well, I shouldn't say the worst, sorry. Now I'm passing judgments. The strangest to me is when people have a very large... Uh, a very large insect of some kind. So people who have like a pet tarantula, that to me just seems completely bizarre. But I, I don't know. You know, I guess it's just a, it's a conversation starter. It's like, hey, babe, you want to come back to my place and and meet my pet tarantula? That's actually a spider. We're talking about a spider here. I'm talking about pets, everybody. Uh, but yeah, I just anyway, I'm thinking about pets. It's on the mind right now. I'm in a new apartment. And I, I feel like I've got I've got now over 400 square feet of living space. So maybe it's time to get a pet. If you have any fun pet ideas, let me know. Uh, I've always wanted maybe a fox. But again, you know, that's a wild animal and you can't have a pet fox, apparently. So if you've got any pet ideas, you can send them to me on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Also, if you want to buy a T-shirt, everybody, BuckSexton.com slash store. Uh, please do share the show with a friend. Pass the buck, as we like to say here in the hut. 
would be a great honor, a privilege, and a pleasure to uh, try to entertain and inform someone else in your orbit, friend, family, or even foe. Just pass along the show iTunes, Buck Sexton with America Now. Click subscribe. Until tomorrow, my friends, Shields High.